Uh, welcome back, everybody. This is uh, another fibromyalgia-related podcast, but it's also, in a general sense, explaining some of the lessons we've learned in the scientific community about pain and pain in general as it relates to a chronic condition. A little bit of backstory on this one. The idea of this subject about low-dose naltrexone is something that I think needs to be told. It's not complete. It's not necessarily uh, rigorously documented as uh, accurate. It is informational, as it should be. That's all this podcast is, is informational. It's never medical advice. But I evolved into uh, this podcast series about fibromyalgia because as a lurker, I went to a number of uh, Facebook fibromyalgia pages, just kind of hung out and looked at what people were discussing. The topics of pain, associated symptoms, do you haves and do you haves nots, weight gain, weight loss, side effects to medications, you should do this, you should try this test, you should try this treatment, here's a book, it goes on and on and on. But it's like that Venn diagram that no one really wanted to see (laughs) in school. When you get a lot of things in there and it's all kind of vague, vague means lack of understanding usually or lack of pointing to a specific detail that reliably helps us come to a conclusion. If I could say anything about Facebook, it's nice to have a landing page where people can go and feel an expression, although there aren't consequences. In these Facebook groups, I've seen pretty close um, comments about diagnosing something. And that's what you don't want to do on a Facebook page. You don't want to diagnose somebody else's problem. You don't have the physical exam. You don't have the person in front of you with the complete medical history. The list goes on and on. What you can do is have a discussion. Should you join a support group? The answer is yes. There are pros and cons. Uh, And a true support group is good news surrounding a, a problem, especially one like fibromyalgia, interstitial cystitis, headaches, irritable bowel, chronic fatigue, and the like, uh, fibro five. Uh, and in this era of COVID, it's nice that there's no traveling involved to conferences. Uh, it can be just pretty much understood uh as a commentary and not necessarily a, a visit to a physician or health provider's office. And in, in fact, if, if it's grounded, the materials presented and the comments that people make can be very reassuring. It's a lonely process when you have chronic pain and you feel with something like chronic pain that can't be seen, felt, or measured – People don't believe you. They just don't believe you. They don't think that 
especially in something like fibromyalgia, this widespread pain that is disabling in so many is a real thing. And they're either lazy or they want to sleep all day or, you know, they don't want to go to work. It's not true. These folks have a problem. And I've talked about this. Granted, migraine headaches exist. Granted. And we can't see, touch, feel, or measure them, but there are whole specialties and subspecialty niches that focus on this. Not so much with fibromyalgia. Interstitial cystitis, that can't be seen, felt, or measured, although it there are some diagnostics. Cystoscopy can see hunters, ulcers, things like this. But the pain isn't something that's always classically understood. Therefore, these support groups can be a mixture of learning about the problem and experiences uh, with therapies and uh, resources that can be helpful. And that goes beyond the healthcare provider. We have limited time in the room to talk to folks about this stuff. And I often reference support groups for those that I don't have uh, the ability just to sit down and and go through the details. And then they come back with uh, a more informed question set for me, and and we go from there. That's a, a productive visit to the healthcare provider. All right. Um, helping people is an important fundamental, but in an untrained capacity, more harm can be done than good. So just have uh, a healthy respect and a certain level of positive skepticism that can happen so that you can scrutinize support groups. Uh, They're a good sounding board. All right, so this, this discussion today about low-dose naltrexone came from one of those support groups. It helps us better understand fibromyalgia. Is fibromyalgia real? Yes, it is. It is real. It doesn't have a specific diagnostic test. I suppose someday that'll come. These groups are looking at uh, inflammatory markers, but what does that mean? Well, when I talked a little bit about glial cells... We talked about some of this neuroinflammatory component that is so fibromyalgia. What is cool about low-dose naltrexone is, yeah, it's way off-label. It's not FDA-approved for fibromyalgia or chronic painful disease entities, but shows some promise. Low-dose naltrexone is an anti-inflammatory. There's also ultra-low-dose naltrexone. That's almost homeopathic, so I'm not even going to go there. But it's not the same class as non-steroidal or anti-inflammatory agents such as steroids, NSAIDs, and the like. Low-dose naltrexone acts paradoxically, and it's probably one of the first useful glial cell modulators, which, you know, it's just opinion. It's opinion. It's based on some good science. Uh, Fibromyalgia is probably a neuroinflammatory disorder, and it explains so much, and it puts a lot of uh, check marks in the areas that need to be understood and explains a lot of uh, vague and um, 
marginal symptoms. It's not new. Now, Trexone was synthesized in 1963, and it's an opioid receptor antagonist. That's like uh, Narcan or Naloxone. You may know about that. But it's pretty long-acting, and it has a good oral um, bioavailability, whereas Narcan does not. So Narcan could be helpful too, but it's usually more IMIV. Now, Trexone, uh, beautifully enough, is also inexpensive. It's generic. The typical cost of a naltrexone prescription, uh, again, off-label, for low-dose purposes, is around 50 bucks. And I'm just throwing that out. It's going to be regionally variable. Who knows what it costs? But it has to be compounded. It doesn't come ready-made. And no, you can't make it yourself. You, you don't uh, have the capacity uh, at the home uh, laboratory to <laughs> get uh, the accurate dosing, which is so important. So multiple disease states such as Crohn's, fibromyalgia, this widespread musculoskeletal pain are responsive. It's probably better than the 50-50 rule. In other words, 50% of the treatments work 50% of the time. It's probably a little better than that, and that's probably because of the science. So first published about 2007, uh, there's more interest in it over the past couple years than I've seen uh, in a long time. Uh, And in particularly difficult treatment scenarios and syndromes remember fibromyalgia is not a disease it's not a progressive disease it's a syndrome it's a group of problems and uh widespread um involvement that further checks the box for neuroinflammation uh, there are some controversies. It is a subtle niche, and few clinicians are aware of this. That's why you don't read a lot about it. There's basic scientific evidence that now tracks um, anti-inflammatory effect, particularly in the central nervous system, in a low dose, uh, it, um, might enhance body's endogenous opioid production. That's one theory why it kind of works. I don't think that's the right answer. It may do that. You get more endorphins and enkephalins. But don't forget, this is also a uh, opioid um, reversal agent and uh, blocker, if you would. So to get in the weeds, we look at what happens when you get down to the cellular level? And there's this thing called a toll-like receptor for TLR4. I, I don't want to get too far into this. But it is found on certain cell types and felt to exert an anti-inflammatory effect. That's why you see it on tumors. You see a lot of TLR4. You see it elsewhere. And there's about – I think there's 18 uh, different TLR uh, factors, but TLR4 seems to be relevant for pain and neuroinflammation. Uh, and the cell types in the central nervous system are sensitive to glial activity at different levels. So there's microglia, that's the ones we're interested in. 
right now. <laughs> uh, there's astrocytes and then there's others. But uh, the ones that I'm going to focus on are microglia. And if you look at neuroinflammation, it checks the boxes for f- fatigue, cognitive impairment, that fibro fog, sleep disruption, situational depression, anxiety, and on and on. When your brain has an interruption of its uh, neuroprocessing, things don't work that should work. For example, glia and this inflammation are irritated by opioids. So if you think about it, your doctor might be telling you, we got to cut back on your opioid. You say, I can't, I need, I can't get out of bed and that sort of thing. No, no, it actually may help you. Just saying. And that's called opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Um, It's a pro-inflammatory model, and we see it. I see it in high-dose patients with cancer and other maladies such as failed back surgery syndrome. It's the toughest thing to try to explain to people that sometimes when you come down, you feel better. So it's felt to be neuroprotective. If when you look at the inflammatory agents such as interleukin-1 or uh, TNF-alpha uh, in animal models, uh, these um, studies suggest that the microglia are irritated by these mediators. And that, <clears throat> along with other cytokines, might be the uh, blood markers people are so hopeful for. Uh, when diagnosing fibromyalgia. What I don't like is the misconception that is probably uh, perpetuated by those getting these blood types and doing these genetics, uh, and they're charging a lot for this stuff. So a clinical trial is generally not charged to insurance companies or to the patient. It's generally funded. And so we'll wait to see what happens with all these uh, studies, quote-unquote. And the data seems to be encouraging. So it's worthwhile looking into low-dose naltrexone. Uh, Talk it over with your health care provider. The side effect profile is, well, it's just like anything else, you know. Everybody in the PDR... uh, Every drug out there, so true with headaches, nausea, vomiting, constipation, all this sort of stuff. Yeah, maybe all this stuff can happen. I, I don't know. Uh, I think the data will be coming along uh, soon that shows us that it is a pretty safe alternative to opioids. Anything but opioids is a good thing, uh, except benzodiazepines. Um, and. Uh, it's probably going to really enhance the symptoms that bother those with fibromyalgia the most. Uh, sleep, fatigue, uh, memory disturbance, uh, this kind of widespread pain that I still don't know what the definition of that is. Pain just kind of everywhere that you keep chasing. And I think low-dose naltrexone is worth a try. And no, it's not going to be perfect, but I'm throwing it out there because I see it out there. And I've used it and found it to be a pretty good option for us. It's really helped me decrease the opioid load on a lot of uh, folks um, 
which is a win-win for everybody involved. So finally, um, I was talking to the medical director of medical justice uh, yesterday, and that's a group that uh, looks and manages uh, risk uh, in practices. Uh, uh, it's uh, founded by Jeff Siegel, MD. He's a neurosurgeon, really nice guy, really nice guy, uh, and generally interested in patients' access to care through protective activity uh, in uh, medical practices. We're getting more and more heavily regulated. Uh, opioids are becoming more and more scrutinized by medical boards and regulators. And access to um, opioids and other traditional medical treatments eventually could be problematic. I don't think it is right now, especially if you're um, seeing somebody that responsibly prescribes and has credentials to do so. But that could change. As we see, uh, things change quickly, just look at COVID. Change the whole landscape of how we go about our daily activities. It's just things happen, and they happen fast. And that was one of the topics that came up is uh, medical boards really are starting to look at opioids. So that's a conversation to have with your health care provider if you're on opioids. And I mentioned it to be complete because if low-dose naltrexone is what I think it is, an opioid-sparing uh, adjunct, just like gabapentin is, it's uh, worth a look. Uh, final a couple thoughts about gabapentinoids. And when I talked about five rules, uh, rule number four is know thy meds. Have five categories and know five drugs under them. And in three months, learn five more drugs under them. And this is for healthcare providers out there. One of them that I think is really important in the pain world is gabapentin or gabapentinoids. And that would include pregabalin, which is uh, Lyrica. These drugs are unbelievably so, but uh, they are becoming uh, more scrutinized as well, and availability may be more and more difficult over time. It doesn't seem to be so right now, but there is talk about getting them scheduled. And when they're scheduled, uh, it'll probably be a low schedule, uh, at least per gabalin is. Uh, gabapentin will be less available to certain patient populations, and particularly in fibromyalgia. Gabapentinoids are useful in painful entities, particularly uh, this problem with widespread pain, irritable bowel, chronic fatigue, migraines, etc. And they're in extensive use, and it appears after billions of doses, they're pretty safe. Yes, some people have had trouble with them, and some people have had trouble with aspirin. Um, and do some people get hooked on them? Maybe. Pretty low risk. Um, I think it's along the lines of Starbucks coffee. But, you know, um, it's just responsible prescribing. What I'm seeing in these fibromyalgia pages is I'll, wait, I'll gain weight. I'll lose weight. I'm getting puffy. I mean, side effects, yeah, they're there. Uh, pre-gabalin, you do gain weight. Uh, a lot of people gain a lot of weight. <laughs> And we've got to be aware of that. That is a side effect your healthcare provider should know about. Gabapentin itself, yeah, you get a little bit of uh, peripheral edema, like ankle edema, maybe puffy fingers and the like. But if you're active and you exercise, which I 
keep urging people to do, it's going to be a minimal problem. If you adjust your diet, uh, if you're gaining weight, less ins than outs, you're going to be you're going to be fine on that drug. And uh, Lyrica or pregabalin is uh, FDA labeled for fibromyalgia, so it should be covered. Uh, Neurontin or gabapentin is not, but it's a sister drug, and it's re- I, I studied it, fibromyalgia. I did a study on it, 1,000 pages of data. It was really good. Uh, it was a heck of a lot better than taking a bunch of opioids and taking to the bed. So fibromyalgia is a process of risk management. Irritable bowel, chronic fatigue, widespread pain, all these uh, problems that uh, show up at the healthcare provider's office as the most common complaint we see, that's pain, uh, have to be managed. And so the more tools we have, the better off we are. It looks like low-dose naltrexone will be emerging as a tool and maybe sunsetting uh, a high opioid load, maybe sunsetting inability to do things, function, quality of life indices, maybe improving memory, sleep, and uh, eliminating daytime fatigue. Maybe. And let's just keep an open mind. And I'm going to continue to monitor these uh, groups, which once again, should you join one? Yes, but do so uh, with diligence. Due diligence. I will talk to you soon.